just remembering that like it's real short. Even if you don't know how long you're going to live, you really don't know how long you're going to live and be healthy. So just really taking advantage of that every day and making that part of the things you're thankful for just lets you see what things are worth worrying about and what are not in the hard times. And then just live in a life that, that you can be happy with. That's Dr. Nate Kaiser talking about what he's learned from working with his patients. Dr. Kaiser is a functional neurologist who runs a neurorehabilitation clinic in Chelsea, Michigan. He helps people heal after brain injury, concussion, stroke, post-viral dysautonomia, and other neurological conditions. In addition to his clinical practice, he's an assistant professor of neurology at the Carrick Institute and is also a husband and proud father of three. The whole idea for this podcast stemmed from an essay I wrote that explained the similarities I've found between effective brain injury rehabilitation and the ability to thrive in college. While it may seem like a ridiculous comparison at first, in both situations, individuals are challenged by things like failure, identity exploration, and abundant learning. So I thought Dr. K, as a neurorehabilitation specialist, would bring in valuable perspective to the show. In this episode, we will talk about a wide range of things, from time management and habit hacking to learning tips and why everyone should try rock climbing. My name is Sarah Remberg. I'm a senior in the LSA Honors Program at the University of Michigan, and this is How to Student, a show where we explore all the things that make college so stressful and help students, just like you, be successful. You work with people kind of in a tough point in their lives. So how do you help your patients respond to the adversity they face? The way that we approach life, if you're in a good mood, life is easier. And if you're in a bad mood, life feels harder just simply based on the mood you're in. So you can imagine if you're sick and you're not feeling well, it does the same thing to us. So really helping to orient toward the process of what that means to get a little bit better every day, not so much focused on like, you know, the catastrophe of if this lasts forever or is this going to be better by tomorrow and more focused on you know, here's the process that we're undertaking to get better. And every day, I'm just going to keep working on that until I find myself in a place where I'm, I'm where I want it to be. So how do you help your patients break down big and complex things into smaller, more easily attainable things sort of on a path? I would say it kind of comes in, in this like, construct of steps. So you think about like, trying to break it down into as many small pieces as we can, like these little bites. Because every time we accomplish the smaller part, we get a little hit of dopamine. We get the sense of accomplishment that comes with that. For example, if I wanted to teach someone how to walk again, that may start with something as simple as knowing where their feet are. And once you know where your feet are, can you then move one? Moving one seems simple, but maybe, you know, it means like flexing your toe down. And then once you flex your toe down, can you flex it up? And then can you move your foot up and down? And then you, you expand the range. Can I get the range bigger? And then we see what that looks like, you know, at the knee and at the hip. And then how do we control our trunk? And then we might bring them up and have them sit and try to do the same things, but in a different context with gravity and sitting. And then can you stand and bear weight? And all these things that progress us along the way to walking, they're small, but those little small things 
can add up. They're transferable is the word we use. They're transferable into bigger tasks. So something as simple as walking starts with just controlling muscles and then controlling muscles on more and more complex scales. And most of the things we do kind of work like that. You can pick, you know, whether it's learning something in a classroom, whether it's building something, you know, pick your thing. They all have these, these elements of simplicity that evolve into complexity. So understanding rather than trying to, like trying to get the whole complexity at one moment, if you break it down into simple parts, you get the chance to have victories at each simple part and it keeps you moving. It keeps you going until eventually the complexity is is there. I've certainly found that when I'm working on whether or not it's, you know, tackling a semester or, you know, learning a new skill that being able to break it down uh, has been helpful. And I think I owe my experience in like the rehabilitative process to being able to uh, attack challenges in that way. If you were to do organic chemistry, and they just said, they just gave you a list at the beginning of the semester and were like, all right, you got to learn how to do all this stuff. It'd be so daunting, right? But by walking you through and like layering piece by piece by piece on, you can walk through a semester of even organic chemistry, which is, which is a tough class. You can add those little simplicities together and ultimately you end up with that list accomplished. Where at the beginning of it, when you look at it, it's like, I would have no idea how to tackle that on my own. Similar to rehabbing from an injury or adjusting to a neurological condition, finding success in college involves trial and error. Ever try out a new study technique and figure out after you get your quiz back that it, in fact, did not work? Or maybe you've experimented with different strategies to stay on budget during the semester. Dr. Kaiser serves as a guide for his patients as they go through a similar trial and error process as they learn to navigate a new life, so I wanted to ask him about that. The figuring it out part is where is where all the magic happens. And the figuring it out is where you learn. The figuring it out is where you, you iterate and you go through the process of embodying things. If it's just handed to you or we accept things as true, then we don't go through the rigor of figuring out if it is true. We don't go through the rigor of, of understanding how things work. So yeah, even if, if you're trying to teach somebody something, you know the answer, but you need somebody to go through the work so that they understand the answer. And I think the more times we can put ourselves in a position where we have to like work through something or figure it out, it just makes our, just fills our toolbox and gives us a bigger, richer version of ourselves. Could you give me an ex example just from your own life where you've sort of experimented with trial and error to achieve something? Oh, gosh. All day, every day. So like a good example would be I had a, a time period in my life where I had to reestablish exercise as a goal. I had it kind of like taken away. I didn't choose to not be able to exercise, but I had to come back. So I had previously been doing a lot of, of CrossFit. I was competitive in it in terms of like trying to compete on a regional level and I couldn't do that anymore and knew that I needed to get back into it. So, but I knew if I tried to do CrossFit again, that I would try to do it like I had before. And that wasn't available. I didn't have that, that capacity at the time. So what I did was I chose, I said, I decided to start rock climbing, start bouldering. I'd never done it before, but I knew that my capacity to be able to hold on to a rock was not very high. So my grip wasn't that good. You know, I was rock climbers have this insane grip. And I just didn't have that. So I knew that by the time I could develop my grip, the rest of my conditioning would, would trail with that. So I would be able to exercise in a way where I couldn't push myself too hard, which allowed me to be able to kind of adapt with the training. 
And just that learning process of learning how to do that fell in love with climbing and like opened up a whole new world for me. That's one of my favorite trial and error scenarios. I couldn't agree more. Um, And that's one of my, um, you know, things I'll be forever grateful to you for is introducing me to climbing and introducing it as a self-limiting form of exercise where you wouldn't be able to go too far because your grip would go out before I'd run into other issues. Skipping a little bit to what I had planned for the end of the interview, because we're (laughs) on the the topic of climbing, why should students climb or do an activity that's similar? I think climbing has this unique capacity that I haven't found in anything else I've done. And I'm a novice climber. Like I'm not a lifetime climber, but I love it. And I think it's useful because it requires every bit of your attention in this moment to solve a problem that is a physical problem. So, so much time as a student, we spend solving these problems that just live in our head. Like they're fully represented in our head. It's a different mechanism to solve problems that are physical problems, that are problems with our body. Um, And I don't think we get as much opportunity to do that, even though that kind of problem solving makes us better at abstract problem solving. So one, climbing is just like a big puzzle, which is fantastic. So it's great for, for all of us. But as a student, it allows you to have that physical outlet allows you to be able to like take your mind fully away from whatever the thing is you're working on and have that outlet. And then the other thing is, is it's usually fun and the people there are pretty enjoyable. So it's a good social thing too. So I love it. Can't say enough good things. In addition to your clinical practice, you're involved with research and teaching through the Carrick Institute. You're also a husband and dad who manages to keep a consistent workout routine and you've built a motorcycle. So how do you manage it all? it's like slowly boiling a frog. I think having time constraints for things is really important. I learned a long time ago, a couple of things that were really important for my health um, and my ability to just like enjoy my time and spend it how I want. For number one, I have routines that make some of the things in my life just kind of automatic. So I don't have to think about them, which frees my mind up to be able to do the things I want to do. And one of them is around sleep. Even from the time I was an undergrad, like I, I didn't have that that thing that makes you want to stay up real late and try to try to like cram an all nighter and then take the test or whatever. My whole strategy was more around like if I just do something every day and just keep moving forward, then you know when when bedtime comes around, like I don't feel the pressure to have to stay up and keep at it, and I know that I'm not very good. If I don't sleep. So that's always been a thing for me is, is that concept of sleep. And then that just kind of melded into everything else. So like when I work, there's a, there's a time in the day when the day is done. And then there's, I have a transition that's through exercise where after work I exercise and that signals that transition in my day to where we're no longer in a working mindset. And now I'm like to my family. So that allows me to be able to like kind of hit all the things that are important to me in separate times, but they come in separate times the same way every day. So it's all kind of scheduled out and it's planned. Like my family doesn't expect me to come home in the middle of the day to spend family time. And I don't feel guilty about that in the same way. Like they know, like my wife knows that at a certain time I'm going to exercise and that breaks the pattern of like when is work and when is home. And, you know, then I don't feel bad about, about those things either. So by being able to break it, everything into its own time and it has its own place in my habit schedule allows me to be able to manage a lot more things. 
and it allows me to be able to to think about things only kind of in their space rather than having them floating around in my head all the time. For someone who's currently feeling super overwhelmed in the middle of the semester, what would be some of your suggestions on how to you know, figure out one's priorities and then dial the schedule in a way that makes them more able to be successful? I think looking at it in terms of one, just where are your skills, where are your talents already? Because there are going to be some things in the course of your study that you're just flat out better at, or you have a better capacity for than others. You know, those things you may not need to spend as much time at, even though they're the things that you may be better at. But being able to prioritize your health makes a huge difference. It's really hard to be good at stuff when you don't feel well. It's hard to remember things. It's hard to learn. So much of being a student is being able to put things into your mind and get them to stick there. And the best way to do that is to be able to consolidate your memory. And the best way to be able to consolidate your memory is to sleep. So I think that's number one. Usually at that stage of life, a lot of stuff is happening. There's a lot of social stuff. There's pressure to be up late at the library. Everybody else is doing it. You got to be able to sleep and then you consolidate that memory and it stays. And then the other idea that I think is is pretty helpful for people is just making sure that you don't try to bite everything off at one time and you take it in, in smaller pieces. Working for 15 minutes on a project every day may get you a lot better faster than working for three hours immediately before it's due in a high pressure, high stress environment. Even with patients now, I will find a lot of times that it's helpful for me if I do my diagnostic work and then I get to sleep on it and then I come back the next day and design a treatment because things will happen in my sleep. I will consolidate things and it's like ideas will come in that were not there so I, I feel like the more time you have to develop your thoughts, to develop your work, rather than trying to cram it in at the last minute, when you get to develop it over time, you get the benefit of it kind of churning in the background of your mind without having to be consciously aware of it. And I think a lot of times in, a, in an academic environment, I'm guilty of this, in an academic environment, we don't get as much of a chance to do that, to just allow it to live in your brain, even though you're not conscious of it. So if you're struggling with time management, you're not alone. First, think about your priorities. Are you trying to do well in school? Land a great summer internship? Stay fit? Be more involved with your student org? Everyone's will likely be slightly different. Then, create a schedule with block time for schoolwork, working towards your other priorities, and leisure. As Dr. K says, the key is to work during work time and then genuinely enjoy time spent doing things you're passionate about. To make the most of your work time, put your phone on do not disturb and out of arm's reach and limit other distractions. You'll be surprised how much more productive you can be. I also make sure to schedule in periods of time for catch up during my week since it's inevitable as busy students will fall behind on our to-do lists. The key here is planning. Try setting up a schedule for the week on Sunday night and see how it goes. You may find that by taking a few minutes to plan out your week's worth of tasks ahead of time will create better study habits and save you more time in the end. This brings us to our next topic of discussion, habits. I'm not the first one to say this. is I'm stealing this, but it, I mean, we are essentially our habits. Our habits are the things that we do the most. There are daily things, there are rituals, the things that we do all the time. We tend to think like we're always choosing the things we do, but most of the things you do in a day are just like the habits you've built over time. And that's what makes up like what you think about, what you do, everything. I also look at habits as 
Like it's what you've trained yourself. It's, it's the thing you prioritize and train. It's like if you are a person that values having clean tea, you're probably going to be a person that has a really good oral hygiene habit. You're probably going to brush your teeth. You're probably going to floss. You're probably going to make sure that like you take care of those things. So habits really become like the expression of what we value. You know, on the other side of that, it gives you the ability to kind of guide your life. If you value school, you're probably more likely to set up a good study habit because you're going to see the effects of that in the thing that means a lot to you. If you don't care about school, you're probably not going to go through the effort to then set up strategies that help you be good at school. But I think about it if we engineer it and try to work backwards and say, like, if, if this is something I value, like if I value exercise, it makes a lot of sense to try to figure out, well, how can I? What are the habits that I can instill in my life that make it easy for me to exercise that, that reduce the friction of, you know, getting to the gym or making sure that I get there every day so that I don't get in a position where I have to try to decide between exercising and something else that's important to me. I just know when five o'clock comes around, it's time to head out the door and go exercise. That's a key one. You, if you read the book Atomic Habits by James Clear, He's done a really good job of distilling a lot of this information. Some of the work was done by some folks out in Stanford, and there have been a couple other books that have been written, but I find that his does a really good job at exploring this idea of uh, things like the two-minute rule. So when you're trying to form a habit, you just start by doing the first step of the habit. The one he gives an example of in his book is if you have an exercise habit, maybe the first step is just getting your shoes on. And then whatever happens after that's all good. But you want to just create this opportunity for there to be a win and just continue to form the habit of like the hard part, which is getting up and going that first the first two minutes of the rule. So I think there are there are a lot of really great lessons out of that book that I've embodied. And I know we've talked about them a bunch, but there's those little things that reduce the friction and allow you to make it part of your everyday add up over time. I I started mm-hmm. writing a book last fall and I had someone tell me just to start by writing 250 words a day. And which seems, it was just not very much. It's like a half a good email is 250 words a day. So it's not that much. But their point was like in six months, if you do this every day, you you essentially have enough to finish your book. And obviously there are going to be days where you write way more than 250 words. Um, there are going to be days when 250 words is tough, but you at least have done it. And by doing that, they said you can either in six months have a book Or six months is going to go by and you won't. Either way, six months is going to go by. So you might as well write the book. And that's exactly what happened. Just changing that little habit of committing to that every day was able to finish it when I tried to start and stop it, you know, six different other times. What are some of your habits? When do you reach for your phone? How do you get ready for your day? As Dr. Kaiser pointed out, your habits have an impact. Are they helping or hurting? If you're at all interested in better understanding and improving your habits, I'd highly recommend checking out Atomic Habits by James Clear. The book introduced Dr. Kaiser to habit tracking, which I wanted to talk to him about. So you've recently, I think maybe in the last few months, started creating these habit trackers for your patients to track their home therapy. And I was wondering if you've seen um, a noticeable difference in both patient compliance uh, and motivation, as well as clinical outcomes. Yes, it's been super helpful. 
for me as as kind of the the guide in this scenario, and I think for the patients that are doing it because it creates this little tether between us of accountability. I don't get to see all my patients every day for a period of time. Like we'll go long stretches of time without seeing one another. By having that little thing where you just have to check the box saying I did it, I th- it's a way that we have some accountability because we can we do, we do it in a Google Doc so both of us can see it all the time. So I can always go in and take a look at it and kind of see what's going on. And even if I never take a look at it, which I do, but even if I never do, that idea that I might can kind of help hold some of that accountability. But then I think even from the patient side, maybe you can speak more to this. I think from the patient side, it just gives that little victory where you know you get to see your accomplishments kind of adding up and give you an, an opportunity to to orient to the day and just track, even though it's something small, just being able to keep track of it and recognizing that you're sticking to it every day. Yeah, I think there is something perhaps silly, but still satisfying to, to checking a box and seeing the progress. Because I think a lot of times when you're working on one small thing, you know, it's frustrating at times is to sort of be in the moment and not necessarily see such progress. But then when you, you know, open up the habit tracker, you see, you know, the long list of days that where I've worked hard at it, you can see sort of incremental improvements in what I report and the fact that you sometimes I see your little face pop up in the Google Doc makes <laughs> definitely hold some accountability. Isn't it nice just to sometimes look back at it and go like especially when you think about things that add up over time, like these cumulative little goals. Like exercise is always a big one. Just anything that you have to you have to do a little every day. When you look back and you're able to see like man, I've done this the last 30 days in a row. That's it's very gratifying. Yeah, absolutely. And the the last thing about the habit tracker that I wanted to, to talk to you about was one thing that I think is important and, and perhaps overlooked often in a clinical setting is that you include the victory of the day as one thing you have to fill out every day. So uh, would you talk a little bit about why you thought that was so important to include? Oh, man, there's a bunch of reasons. So I'll give you kind of like a little bit of a long and short story. It's just good to orient, like to, to have to stop for a second. And think about something that was great about today. Because the reality is, like our automatic thoughts kind of take over for us all the time. And it takes us pretty much the same amount of energy to think about like good things as it does to think about the things that we don't have or the things that we want or the things we're frustrated about. But what's interesting is we get different brain activation with the two. We light up more areas in our, our cerebellum that's kind of in charge of coordinating our movement and our thoughts and our emotion kind of all into one thing. We get more activation in our prefrontal cortex just by thinking about things that we are thankful for or that we did a good job at or that we're proud of. So in my line of work, those are areas that I'm really interested in getting active in people. And we know that kind of the opposite happens when we think about kind of the the things that we're beating ourselves up about or things we're worried about or kind of the, our, our lack of having things tend to suppress activity in those areas. So it's very therapeutic for a lot of people to stop and just think about things that they're thankful for, that they're really happy they did. And if you look in into most days, there are probably things that you did, probably a dozen things that you did today that you could be real proud of. It's good to flex the muscle of feeling proud, one, because it feels good, and two, because it actually has great outcomes in our brain. Don't just take our word for it. 
In 2011, researchers at Harvard published a study that involved analyzing thousands of diary entries from over 230 employees across seven different companies. They found that capturing small wins every day enhanced a worker's motivation and resulted in more meaningful progress. So what's one small victory from your day? Write it down. One of the things that I think you harped on me for so much, but I think is important for everyone. And I actually think, you know, sort of cultivating this skill has allowed me to do a lot more and I think approach my future in a, in a better, more productive way. And that is having self-awareness and specifically listening to your body. So why is that so important? When you're, when you're trying to just do things and, and rush through life, we tend to neglect some of the things that, that keep us running, whether that's, you know, kind of getting overtrained, whether that's that sickness you start to feel around exam time when everybody starts to get colds and the flu because they're, they're going too hard and they're having too much stress. All those little things kind of sneak in on us if we're not paying attention. So the ability to just kind of be aware of why you're doing things and taking a step back and allowing yourself to feel healthy is a little foreign for most of us. Taking that step to be like, well, maybe I should just relax today instead of going to the gym, even though I have this like this urge or this, this need to feel like I need to. Maybe today is a day where I'm noticing that I'm real kind of worn down and I'm starting to get a little sick or whatever the thing is. So I think those things are important, especially in a brain injury community. People are more aware of their, their limitations. So sometimes it's good to just be able to, to recognize when recovery is needed and when it's also needed to kind of push a little bit. So the awareness of what is useful here and what, you know, and what is detrimental is really important. And that, that translates into healthy populations too. Like when are we pushing this too far or when do we need to back down? Or when do we need to push more and get through to the other side? My favorite thing that Dr. Kaiser has ever said to me is embrace the suck. It's become something of a mantra to me during this quarantine. Life is hard right now. Online school is less than ideal. I haven't had the social life I anticipated for my senior year. I miss simple pleasures like a leisurely stroll through a grocery store and rock climbing. I can choose to wallow in the suckiness of it all and be miserable, or I can acknowledge that things that I can't control stink and lean into what this new version of life has to offer, like having the opportunity to make this podcast. It's just useful. Um, and that, and that, by the way, I, that is, that is borrowed wisdom from somewhere I don't remember. It was something to do with CrossFit, I'm sure. When I, I used to wrestle as a, as a kid and we had this coach. That would like when it was real bad. Um, wrestling is such a brutal sport. When it was real bad, he'd make a smile, forcefully smile. And that idea of like when, when it's the hardest is when you smile, um, has stuck with me. And I think that goes with, with the embrace the suck. There is a relationship with the things that as you go on in life, the things that are the things you value the most, like the times in your life you value the most are usually the ones that were the hardest fought victories. The things that come easy tend not to mean as much to us as the things that we really had to work for. So there's, there's a relationship there that I think is worth like smiling about. And mm -hmm. like, yes, this sucks, but that means it's going to be worth so much more. The next time you're struggling with homework late at night, remember to embrace the suck and lean into the learning that college brings. Next, I wanted to get some learning tips from Dr. K. So as a brain specialist, do you have any learning hacks? 
Yeah, the best one is like repetition and sleep. I mean, that's, that's those are the two biggest ones is letting it consolidate. So much of us, <laughs> we just don't sleep. I mean, you know how it is, in, especially in college. Another one to consider is that it is easy for us for some reason, and it's been studied like crazy. Uh, we could get into that the Trinity phenomenology, but basically we're real good at remembering three things. We're okay at remembering four, some of us. Once it starts getting to five, it gets real dicey. So if you're learning something, in threes is the way to go. So like learning three things, stepping away. The other thing to consider is we're also good at chunking things together. So the concept of chunking is basically like if you were going to remember a phone number, you've got kind of that sing-song pattern in your head, right? So you've got the area code. I'm going to have to pick a number that is like not a real number. So you might say like 734-475-5881. That, breaking that down into chunks, what do we end up with? You end up with three chunks, really, right? So the chunk one is the area code. And most people will recognize an area code because they know it. It's local to them. So they just can remember that as Washington, D.C. area code or Chelsea, Michigan area code. And I know what that number is. And then the second part is kind of more your city. And you can break that into its own chunk, even though it's three numbers again. And then you're left with a third chunk, which is four. And if you've ever noticed, that's like the harder part to remember usually. And that's the one, you know, into that third chunk. So if you're thinking about if you're in a class, most teachers, if they're, you know, thinking about this, We'll structure it that way where you've got kind of three concepts, a beginning, middle, and the end, or, you know, three key pieces that you can chunk together. And then once you've got those pieces chunked together, that becomes a chunk. And then you can add that to another one. So just thinking about it in terms of like, what are the three things I want to get out of this? If you go into that studying, that's really helpful because you can say like, okay, I got my three things. That's a chunk. One, you get to feel like accomplished that you've got it. You're calling to your own awareness and your, uh, your own attention that that is a group of three things that go together. And then that allows you to use that chunk or that concept to be able to apply it into the next thing. So it helps you to break it down instead of this one long narrative that just goes on and on and on into these little sub-segments that allow you to put the pieces together, like building Legos. And the last question that I ask all of my podcast guests is what would you tell your freshman year college self? To just go. At that point in my life, I, it's something I learned later on, but I wish I would have done it earlier where it was, you know, just take the, take the leap into being social with people you're not used to being social with and do the things that seem like they won't be fun to just kind of see, just to explore and, and uh, not be afraid to, to let your hair down. Let me give you a story about that. So when I went to grad school, it was the first time I moved away from everybody. So I had moved away from home before, but it was always like to a different, different like home base. Like there were still people there I knew. And when I went to grad school, it was the first time I didn't know anyone. And I was in a new place and was like around different people. And like the first couple weeks there, I was down. Like I was not depressed, but like really having a hard time figuring out how to do that. We kind of did a little post hoc analysis. I was like, okay, if you're going to be happy, you need to have friends. Like that's always been a thing in your life. So you're going to have to make some friends. It was the first time that friends didn't just like come in the package of sports and school. 
So I decided, like, if someone asks you to do something, you just go do it. Uh, if it doesn't seem like it's going to be fun, fine. You're just, you're going to say yes. Kind of like that Yes Man movie with Jim Carrey. And I did that. And that was probably the best thing I've ever done moving into a new territory like that. Cause it forced me to make different friends and meet, meet with new people and just kind of do things that involved me in the social climate of the school that helped me like set those social networks that were really important and like it just get in the groove of being in that school again was probably the best thing I ever did. And obviously there's like, there are limits to all those things, but I basically at that time, that was, that was the thing that I needed. That was the remedy. Thanks for listening to episode one of how to student on this episode. We covered strategies to maintain motivation, effectively manage your time and study efficiently. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to share and subscribe. Our social media handle is at How to Student Podcast for more college tips, episode announcements, and the occasional hilarious blooper. You can find more information about Dr. Kaiser at drkaiser.com, and his social media information is linked in the show notes. This episode was created and produced by Sarah Redenberg. Special thanks to Michelle Jelling, our social media coordinator, and Mika Levesque Manti, the project advisor. This has been a presentation of Packard Street Productions.